Radioland, Podcastville, and all our fellow LA Review of Books readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hi, Eric. Today, we'll be listening to a dialogue between Tom Lutz, publisher of LA Review of Books, and Lauren Stein, the editor of the Paris Review. That's right. We had um, Lauren fly uh, to LA to be a part of our uh, publishing workshop, which we've been having at USC. And we had a nice evening with Lauren where we had a chance to talk about the publishing world, what changes he foresaw in our near future, favorite writers, favorite books. And it was a very fun time all around. Yeah, it was a wide ranging and diverse discussion. It was. There was unfortunately at one point a rat right behind Lauren. So there's maybe a little bit of a pause in the conversation when everybody freaks out and runs away and then runs back. But otherwise, it was lovely. All right. Well, let's listen. So thank you so much for coming. I'm thrilled to have Lauren Stein of the Paris Review here. Right? Yeah, you can you can, yeah, yeah, you can whoop it up. I'm very jazzed up. And thank you, Lauren, for coming. It's an honor. We, we so you. much appreciate thank it. You. Lauren is here in part because he just spoke to our publishing workshop at USC, the LARB USC Summer Publishing Workshop, which is in its inaugural year. We have 55 students, and they are so fucking awesome that I'm completely jazzed. There are people doing amazing projects. It's going to be incubator of uh, journals and publishing lines that you will be hearing about shortly because they are really smart. They are really dedicated, energetic, wonderful people. We started this publishing program for a number of reasons. The main one being that we wanted to find ways to make the publishing world available and give access to people who otherwise would not have access to the publishing world. So we built a program that is in all sorts of ways modeled on the Columbia publishing course, which is made possible by people who donate fellowships. So there are more people coming to the workshop for free than are paying full price. There are people coming at every different level because our readers and our donors have made it possible for them to come. And we recruit at state colleges, at community colleges. We recruit all over the country and especially in this area. And we have a lot of people that could simply could not be doing this without, again, your support and our support. Melissa and Jessica, yeah, thank you. This is, in a way, the kickoff for next year's fund drive for the publishing workshop, even though we're in week one of the five-week program. This is the beginning of it. If you can speak to Melissa, who is here, or Jessica, who's here as well, and Callie is also here, all of whom are LARB staff. We would love to have your support as well if you'd like to be part of this project. I think it's, in a way, the most important thing that we've done at Los Angeles Review of Books so far. We've built a lot of things, right? We built the website. You've we done a lot. I haven't done a lot. We've done a lot. We've, I you know, mean, you, right? you. Yeah. We've done a lot. <laughs> we built a radio show. We built a quarterly journal. We built a website. We built a channels program. But this is the thing that I'm most excited about that we've done. I think it really has the possibility of changing the basic pipeline into the industry, which we all know needs to change in, in various ways. Even though some things don't need to change, the Paris Review does not need to change. It just keeps getting better and better. And it is a model for all of us who do this kind of work. And especially under Lauren's direction, it has just blossomed anew. 
what should we talk about first? One of the things that I asked you at the publishing workshop was to say what the most, the best book you ever worked on was when you were an editor at FSG. Yours. Thank you. <laughs> no, we've known each other for a while because <laughs> Lauren was the editor of a book of mine. <laughs> so that was a trick question and he had no other way to answer it. And, you know, everybody complains about the lack of editing these days. Lauren was in there with a pencil on paper and did line editing line by line and really made that book so much better book than it would have been without him. And uh, as a result, it was the most successful book I've ever written. So thank you for that. <laughs> and are you doing actual line editing at Paris Review now? Yeah, sometimes. We do three things, really, at the Paris Review. We, do, we publish poetry, we publish fiction, and we publish interviews. And I Moonlight as a book editor, where I still do lots mm -hmm. of editing, but if you sign up a poem or a story, there isn't always much to do. Usually there isn't much to do, but the interviews can take years. Yours took two years. Yours was fast, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you talked a lot, and we had to boil it together. We had to boil it down. And these interviews have always been collaborative since 1953. George Plimpton described them in a letter to his parents, who he was asking for money. Mm -hmm. He described them as essays in dialogue on technique. That's really the model. It's one of those funny things. It's odd for a magazine to have one editor for 50 years, which was our case. But it's even stranger for the first issue of a magazine to, by mistake, get the formula right in a way that doesn't really need to be changed. And those interviews, which, when they started, really were the first in-depth interviews. It was before Q&As were a cheap content source for everybody. Those interviews still are, they still distinguish themselves by being essays in dialogue on mm -hmm. technique. Those take some editing. Yeah. That's, that's my long answer. Right. But fiction sometimes as well? Or sometimes, no? sometimes, yes. But largely not. If you fall in love with a short story, mm -hmm. it's usually not a fixer-upper. Uh-huh. Right. right, right. We talked a little bit about the relationship between publishing people who are already established, whose work you know, and I assume at some points solicit, and people who are just starting out on their careers. Which is more fun? They're fun and very different. I don't know if you heard, but the question is, which is more fun, publishing established writers or newbies and we have a special at the review we have a special mission to discover new writers I think that's what we're most known for along with the interviews and so it's a relief when you find someone new because you know you're doing the part of the job that's in some ways the hardest to yeah. do and it's a relief when you find a new writer who speaks to you because that means that the endeavor is alive mm -hmm. but when Anne Beattie gives me a story and it's as funny as Anne Beattie's earliest stories, that too is a kind of <laughs> relief is too strong a word, but yeah. that's pretty great too. And then the middle version is fun when there's a writer, you and I were just talking about Ben Nugent, and a writer who you see, whose work you publish at first and you get to keep working with that young writer and they grow in the pages of the mm -hmm. review. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, yeah, yeah. but I'm a teacher, right? mm -hmm. so it kind of comes naturally to always want to kind of foster this new talent. Yeah. And it has been the Paris Review forever. If you're following on the heels of some of the great editors of their day, this is, was a daunting task, I assume, stepping into those shoes. Well, <laughs> yeah, in a funny way, George Plimpton edited the magazine from 1953 until he died in 2003. And then Philip Gurevich, a terrific reporter, 
did it for five years and then quit to write a book. So I'm number three. And Philip really, that was hard, what Philip had to do, because mm -hmm. George Plimpton, Norman Mailer called him the most loved man in New York. But he was not just in New York. People worship him, rightly so. And what Philip did was to take the magazine and turn it. He really gave a lot of it over to fancy reportage and photojournalism, passions of his. And that was so exactly the right, the only thing to do in that moment. And when I came in, I could just tear all that out and go back to the very first idea of the review, which was to be a magazine devoted exclusively to fiction and poetry, mm -hmm. but really for reasons that belong to my moment, to our moment, mm -hmm. as Philip's decision belonged to five years earlier. The internet had changed a lot. Right. And I think, in a funny way, it made it easy because each of us tacked against the, the earlier with complete respect and admiration. But none of us was doing, neither of us exactly was doing quite right, what had right, happened before. Right. Well, one of the things, speaking of the internet, that you did was start the Paris Review Daily. And that has become required reading for anybody in the literary world. That must feel like an accomplishment. Well, the accomplishment belongs more to Sadie Stein, my wife, formerly the editor of the Paris Review Daily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It sounds bad, but them's the facts. <laughs> but, um, Sadie and the three others who've been the editor of The Daily uh, really have worked independently. And that, the Paris Review, has the luxury of doing very much what it used to do. And our print circulation has tripled over the last 10 years. More people subscribe to the Paris Review now yeah. Than, yeah. than ever have before. But on the Daily side, it's what you guys are facing. It's, and you and I talked a little mm -hmm. bit about this the other day, but people are coming to us in a different way today than they came to us two years ago. And they came to us in a different way two years before that. And the articles have to change the way, the mode of address has to change. And that's the hard job, I think, mm -hmm. is figuring out how to be editing in the moment, on social media, on the web, both. Yeah, and it's changed in the last six months. I mean, in the last year, one of the things that has really kind of confused us and made us work in new ways is that Facebook and Twitter are charging if you want to boost your, right? So when we have 100,000 followers or on Twitter, 300,000 followers, your tweet doesn't go to all of them unless you pay for it, right? Uh, and especially on Facebook, you know, there's this whole question of how you manage this kind of this new environment, which is itself changing daily. Yes, right. that's right. That is right. So that's depressing. Let's talk about... Uh, no, right. But it's yeah. also fun because, you know, almost every subscription that we sell, we're selling from our site. So the challenge of getting a Twitter follower to become a reader of the daily, to become a recipient of a newsletter, to become a subscriber, figuring out how to do that, I never thought that would be something that I stayed awake thinking about mm -hmm. or that I'd enjoy thinking about. But it's something where our whole team gets to put a lot of energy and teamwork. And it's actually a lot of fun. It I'm is. sure you find it, it to be true, too. Well, it's kind of the, you know, old dog learning new tricks. That's part of the way I look at it, that it's just, it has been completely fascinating. And I've learned things that I never wanted to learn, but it's fun to learn them. Yeah. You know, when we started, our first piece was a piece called The Death of the Book, which we thought was funny way to launch a book review. And it's because it's kind of a trope. And when our writer wrote it, he said, I googled the phrase death of the book, and there were 11.6 million 
instances of death of the book on the web at the time. And then he checked it the next day just to check his figures, and it was 11.8 million. <laughs> so the 200,000 uses of death of the book per day. And it's now at 131 million or something like that. And so the kind of talk about the death of reading, the slowdown of reading, the lack of literary interest in the country, you clearly have not been feeling that. You've tripled your circulation, you've, right? you've got an insane number of Twitter followers. 800,000 or something like that? More, yeah. More than that. So if we judge by you, literature is doing great. Yeah, Here. but I think part of the, it's true that a lot of people are reading the review, but I worry sometimes that they're reading the review without a healthy ecosystem. And a lot of what we try to do is to, and a lot of what The Daily is for, is to try to make connections. It's very much mm -hmm. based on what you've tried to do. Mm -hmm. and. It's not healthy to have one literary magazine that has so many more readers than most literary magazines. Mm. The Paris Review used to be one of many that had four or five or 10,000 readers, and now that ecosystem is gone. And it doesn't feel right mm -hmm. to have, we have now 36,000 readers, 20,000 print copies bought. And that doesn't, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. So we're here with Fiona Mazel, and she has a book recommendation for us. Her new novel is A Little More Human, and it was just published uh, this year by Grey Wolf. And Fiona, what's the book that you want to recommend? All right, so I'm going to recommend to your listeners uh, The World to Come by Jim Shepard. This is his latest short story collection. I think it's got 10 stories in it. It is just fabulous. Jim Shepard is one of my favorite contemporary writers. His prose is always gorgeous and astonishing. He's an incredibly incisive uh, purveyor of what is most pressing and urgent about what's happening in our inner lives. And he always manages to do this in multiple guises. His fiction is often historical. He'll go anywhere. The stories are heavily researched. They're often droll. They're usually incredibly moving, if not just downright slaying. So that's my recommendation. Wow. So is that a new, is that a newer book? It's or? new in hardback. I think it just came out oh, in the wow. last month or so. Okay. And what's the, what's the title? Again? The World to Come. The World to Come by Jim Shepard. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK. And now back to Tom Lutz's dialogue with Lauren Stein. At the same time, there are, there are uh, 100 new literary websites a week, too, right, uh, that, are, that are going up. And there's an enormous amount of reading that's, that's going on in these very fragmented ways. And I think that always through the history of, of literature, you have these waves in which there's consolidation in the commercial publishing market and an efflorescence of tiny magazines popping up everywhere. And, and they combine and coalesce and, and centralize a little bit and then they, it breaks open again. And I think that we may be in, a, in the first moment in that long history, I'm talking the last 120, 130 years, that there is a kind of coexistence of the big and the small rather than a, a seesaw. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. I agree with you mm -hmm. completely, but I sometimes worry when I see the little ventures that I sometimes wonder where the anger is. I don't see the anger that 
I don't think you should start a little magazine unless, not that you're all about to go try to do that, or you should if you want to, but if you're not sure that what you love isn't there already, then you probably shouldn't be trying to start something new. And I sometimes feel mm -hmm. that it's that the bar to entry has really lowered, mm -hmm. so that a lot of kids are starting stuff without without really having grappled with what's there, mm -hmm. and that means shouting. You know, that's just sort of speaking without having already engaged. And I I think anger really is an important part of doing, whether it's a book review <laughs> or yeah. or a literary magazine. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Very zen. <laughs> yeah, very zen. <laughs> in the tradition yeah. of Peter Matheson. Well, we, we had, uh, on Friday, we had Jonathan Taplin in talking about his book called Move Fast and Break Things, how Google, Amazon, and Facebook cornered culture and destroyed democracy. I think the, uh, the title is pretty much sums it up <laughs> fairly well. Um, and and, uh, and he's, in that book, he goes through the problems that these kind of monopoly platforms have made for everybody else. And one of the main problems is simply that the financial base uh, for these things has gone away. Um, we don't all have George Plimpton's father. And, but more than that, the thing that makes me angry is that people who used to get $50,000 advance for a book are now getting five. People who used to get $20,000 advance for a book are now getting three. And that's because of the way Amazon is pushing down prices, right? And it's the way, so the, the entry is actually harder in all sorts of ways. That's um, true too, yeah. yeah. I was interested to discover that we sell almost no copies over Amazon. On Amazon, we don't exist. And it's so much fun to be small enough that you can really build a business model as if Amazon didn't exist. Mm -hmm. but, right. but that probably doesn't scale. Yeah, right. The young writers that you're breaking out, are they, how, how are they faring in this, in this world? If you mean financially, it depends mm -hmm. on the writer. Mm -hmm. but, but they're doing, the writers, the writers who I've found, I was always, I, my interest was always novels. I, I was a novel editor, really, for my, most of my grown-up life. And I was, an interested, I was an interested poetry reader, and short stories tend to come along with novels. The people who write novels often write short stories. But it was when friends of mine started a magazine called N Plus One. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. That introduced a new kind of political polemic into the publishing houses. Young editors were passing around these essays wanting to publish these new writers. This is something I talked about mm -hmm. with your kids. Yeah. When the opening at the Paris Review happened, I thought of those friends who five years before had made all of us read a new, to us, to our generation, a new kind of writing, really partisan review essays. They brought that back. They'd made it seem, uh, what's the word I want? They made it seem vital. They made it seem more interesting than anything else that was being written. And I thought, well, could you do the same thing with short stories? Not as if short stories haven't been wonderful forever, but they can't just be in Harper's and The New Yorker. They can't just be items between news stories. And I thought that there, it would be fun to see what happened if you really went after short stories that were, that were intellectual arguments of a kind or aesthetic arguments of a kind, exper really experiments, and that were trying to talk about um, <laughs> the kinds of things that only fiction can talk about. I've got your back. Thank you. <laughs> the kinds of things that only fiction can talk about, things having to do with intimacy, that, that 
uh, if you talked about them from in a factual way, you would you would be ipso facto uh, unreliable because you'd be creepy. Uh, that that was what I was looking for going into it. The surprise was that in those in now those seven years, I, I don't think it's just where I'm standing. It's that um, there are a bunch of young writers who have made fiction to at least for this reader mm -hmm. as much fun as American fiction was in the mid nineties. And which is to say in the David Foster Wallace, Jonathan Franz and Jonathan Leatham moment of efflorescence, something happened and, um, and it was really lucky. And I think that's actually a big part of why our circulation is high mm. because there isn't a place for them to be published uh, in a coherent way mm. anymore. And so this is a long way of saying that although different young writers have had different fortunes, different uh, careers so far, as a group, they've become very interesting and they're interested in each other. And I remember actually Ben Nugent, to come back to another uh, to a writer we were talking about earlier, someone has optioned one of his stories that was in the, the Paris Review. He said, we put out an anthology of young writers from the last five years of the Paris Review, and he said, it's the first time that I've been in the company of fiction writers and felt at home. I'd always only felt at home in the company of poets. And that, that sense of being at home with each other has been important mm. to me as an editor. Mm. You know, there are two other parts of your career. You told my students the other day that you left college deciding you were going to make a living as a literary critic. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and in fact, the last um, party like this that we had was with Mary Gateskill a few weeks ago, a number of you that were there. And I was introduced to Mary Gateskill by a piece that you wrote about her for the New York Review of Books. Oh. Uh, and that was, my, that was my introduction to her. And are you still getting the chance to do that? If you edit enough, you don't. You're kind of off the hook for criticism, I think. <laughs> I think because so. Because you're doing it. <laughs> Editing is criticism before the fact, right? right? Yeah. right. But do you miss it? No. <laughs> no? no? Okay. The, the last time there was a book, there was a novel that came out a few years ago that came from a very small press in a box of books from the small press with no letter. And I was going through them and putting them on what we call the sushi shelf, the giveaway shelf. <laughs> and I was looking at the first page and I read the first page of one of these novels and I turned off my computer and I took it home and I wrote to the New York Review. It was a novel by a young writer called Ben Lerner and it was leaving the Atocha station. Mm -hmm. And that time, when a book like that comes along and you think it might be overlooked, you might try to write a piece of criticism. Yeah. But I didn't need to because James Wood was on it. So uh, yeah. I could have saved us all a bad article. And then you're also a translator. I just I just finally read uh, Submission, the oh. Hulebeck novel that you translated. What did you uh, think? I loved it. Good. I loved it. Good. Yeah. Good. I, yeah. That's yeah. right. You said you liked it. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, and so, and are you still doing that? I am translating a book right now, yes. But again, I don't, my French isn't very good. And they say that really the important thing is to know the target language. But that's true to a point. But Google Translate really only gets you so far, even now. <laughs> but tricks of the trade. It's only yeah, it's only when there's a book where mm -hmm. I really feel that that with Welbeck, for example, mm -hmm. I'd seen some sample translations. I was friends with the editor, and I was very afraid that this book by Welbeck would be 
would be misunderstood. It was mm -hmm. being attacked in the French press, the first wave of, of criticism from people I, I often agree with about other things on the left in France, called this, thought that this book was really uh, giving comfort to the fascists, giving comfort to Marine Le Pen. And I didn't, I thought that that overlooked the, what was funny about the book. And I was afraid that, that it might not be mm -hmm. funny in English. So I don't know if it worked, but mm -hmm. I sat down to try to render what was very funny to me uh, in, in the original. I thought, it was, I thought it was obvious that whatever the, the author thought, it, I thought it was obvious that the book could not be used by the right, except for people who were reading it badly. Mm -hmm. um, and if we... And dis and, well, well, <laughs> well, well, sometimes they do. And, but you can't, I don't think you can... I think it, if it's important if you're thinking about publishing or editing books or writing about books to assume the best in readers because if you start worrying about what bad readers are going to do then you're going to censor yourself. So in the same way there's a book that I'm translating now that I I just think is so um I I'm in love with the book and I'm not I'm not worthy of it but I love it so much and I feel as though I can, I can hear it in the French and I just think mm. if I can get a little bit of what I hear into the English, then it will be a book that other people love too, so. Do you want to say what it is? Yeah, it's called, um, it's called History of Violence. It's a, it's, a book, it's a book by a man named Edouard Louis who has a book out now called The End of Eddie about growing up. It's a, it, these are both nonfiction novels essentially. And the first book is about that I didn't edit, uh, that I didn't translate. I, I edited the translation, but um, it's about growing up in the very de economically depressed north of France, growing up in this very violent, hard-drinking, homophobic, racist, uh, destroyed, rust belt town as a very, very, as a gay kid who's trying to be a tough guy, but also knows that he's gonna get out. Um, this other book, this, the one that I'm working on now, is, uh, is about something that happened to him on Christmas Eve 2012. He, he'd made it. He's a famous writer at the age of 21. He had a huge bestseller with this first book. He'd left his family behind. He was living in Bastille. He, on Christmas Eve, he went to have dinner with his best friends. They gave him two books, a book of uh, a couple of uh, a, a Pleiad Nietzsche and a Claude Simon and he was going home on his bike he wanted to read the books before he went to bed and he locked up his bike before Place de République because he'd had a little too much to drink and he was walking across the square and the guy came up to him um, and said you don't celebrate Christmas and he turns and looks at the guy and the guy's beautiful this North African guy and he, the guy's cruising him and trying to pick him up. And Edouard wanted to go home and go read, but he was entranced by the guy and asked him about his background and his, his, the story of his father's immigration to France. And they start talking on the street. And he took him home and they spent the night together. And, and then he was taking a shower and 
he got out of the shower and he couldn't find his phone. He was wondering what time it was. And the guy was stealing a bunch of stuff from him. And he remembered himself being a thief when he was a kid. He was a working class kid and his sympathies were entirely just like Gide when he sees the kid stealing from him. His sympathies were with the thief, but there were photos on the phone that he wanted. So he tried to come up with a way to get the guy tactfully to give him his phone. And the guy got, the guy ended up almost killing him. He raped him and he almost killed him. And Christmas Day, Edouard went to the police to report this attempted murder. And that's what the book is about, is going to the police and then out from the, after the trauma, not being able to stay alone in his apartment, going back to his village to stay with his sister and overhearing his sister tell her husband, the truck driver, what had happened to her brother. So it's about the way he gets to see himself through the eyes of these cops, these racist cops uh, who are judging him for going home, for picking up a guy, for picking up a North African guy, and then going home to his sister and to the family that he's really very, in a way that makes him very guilty, tried to leave behind. You see, I'm, mm. you see this book yeah. is yeah. possessed exactly. me. Exactly, exactly. And he Fantastic. writes like an angel. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's fun to see him toggling between the, the voice of his sister, the voice of the cops, his own voice, so. Fantastic. Let's, let's, let's take, yeah, right? Yeah. You all have questions, I'm assuming. Yeah, John. In terms of subscriptions, I know that you're fond of print, and you say print subscriptions are up? They've tripled in the last 10 years, print subscriptions. That's because I thought that when you're talking subscriptions, I thought you're talking electronic, and but the print has tripled. Yeah. It's just great. It gives me faith. Well, it gives me faith. It, mm -hmm. it surprised me so much. I... It, yes, gives me, it's, it's neat. But I think you and I clearly both prefer print. All editors know that if you like something, you're probably not that special, you know? That's the name of the game. You, what you like, other people probably like too. It's a matter, book publishing is very good at underestimating readers. And the truth is, and I think this is what makes something like the LA Review or or the Paris Review, or Knopf, or Farris Strauss, or Fancy, or the New York Review. Once you have an imprimatur, you can give people permission to try things that they really want anyway. And you have a way of saying, I believe in this. You're not polling them, but you're saying, I like it. You might like it too. And I think, I think, I really think ebooks, I know that they're useful for certain things, but basically, that was a, that was a, it wasn't a scam, but it, it really, it doesn't solve a problem that most people have. Yes, the OED is easier to read. You know, if you need to look something up, look it up on your phone. But for reading literature, paper is still just a better technology for most of us, you know, unless you're lugging a lot of it around. But who is? I just uh, can go along with that. My son writes middle grade books for kids and has festivals, and I have seen hundreds and hundreds of young people with their suitcases full of books to get their the authors to, or leaving with the books that they purchase. And they love, we're, we are talking about kids that would kill for an iPhone or an hmm. iPad. They love the feeling of books in their hands. Yeah. And that's a whole other entire post 
media generation and post-technology generation? Yes, of course, reading online. We all read online all the time and we need to do it. It makes sense to publish online. But for certain kinds of reading, we retain more, we read slower, it's more fun, it's cozy. I mean, it's a crummy yeah, word, but it's cozier. What I'm just saying is yeah. thousands and thousands of people getting that physical experience yeah. of curling up in bed with, a, with the, whatever we all had under the blanket, yeah. reading yeah. a real book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought the translation of submission was superb. Thank you. And, and one of the great things about it for me was you seemed to ca- it, it, it read as if it had been composed in English, and you had you had the voice. And I think it's much more challenging translating in the first person than it is say in the third person. And could you talk a little bit about fi- how you found the authorial voice to write in the first person for that book? Yes. It felt like a magic trick. Thank you very much for saying that. That's, you've made my night. Well, Ed Goldstein's translations of the Ferrante books are superb, but because they're third person, I think it's easier to find the omniscient voice. Finding that very, very specific first person voice. It's nice of you to say so. I think we have it a little easier because we don't have to make any, we don't have to figure out what happens next. It's there, it's just, <laughs> but the truth is that something did happen. I, I had about two weeks before I had to turn it in and I saw a movie called The Kidnapping of Michel Welbeck, where Michel Welbeck, playing himself, is, it's a caper, is kidnapped and has to talk his, you know, and has to sort of, he wraps all of these kidnappers around his little finger. And it's, and he's a movie star. I mean, he's a natural. And watching the way he was funny on screen, because his narrator is a lot like him, watching just how slow he goes, watching just how gray he is, watching just how the temptation, the problem with translating Welbeck is that one problem is that he, all of his sentences end in an anticlimax and English really doesn't like them. English likes fast and his is, even for French, it's slow. Watching him gave me the courage to really just go back and do it very literally and just slow it down and it's not every day that you get to actually see a really funny thing with the author playing himself. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what your thoughts and your thoughts and everybody's thoughts are on like, the politics of language today, of spoken and written and read language in the States when it comes to publishing and, and the politics of monolingualism and, and publishing and speaking and, and how do you see the future of publishing fiction and poetry and essay and an amazing politically engaged journalism not only in English, because the country doesn't only speak in English and think in English. Um, yeah. I'm glad that you didn't just address it to me. No, no, no. Yeah, No, no. It's tricky because I don't think of our. I don't think anyone can pretend that we're a monolingual country. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. We're not. But the magazine I edit is a monolingual magazine. And I don't find that complicated. We have a hard enough time doing it in English. The question of the politics of bringing things into English is vexed and complicated and interesting. And that's something that I think you kind of wing it and you have to figure out how to do it. And it's a matter of who you know, who you trust, what your taste is. And you know, the transmission from one culture, one language to another is so, the deformations are so interesting. And sometimes my foreign friends 
tell me that we're getting it wrong because why are we publishing, I won't name any names, but maybe our American ears need something that their Mexican ears don't need. Or maybe our American ears need something that their Swiss ears don't need. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the other way around. And the other way around, yeah. Why do they like Paul Oster so much? They can't get enough of him. <laughs> <laughs> teasing, teasing. I will pick you up on that because I don't know if I've made it clear, but this publishing workshop, they're doing half of their time, they're getting lectures and getting workshops and learning things. The other half of the time, they're working on their own projects. And among the projects is a journal in Spanglish. Really interesting project. Wow. And uh, yeah, and we're incubating that. And I think that'll launch shortly. The other is um, we haven't figured out all of the programming for it yet, but we got, we've gotten pretty far. We've got some IT people working with them. And this is a weekend, so we'll, we'll get there. They want to have a multilingual translation site in which you can punch a button. Not everything will be translated multiple times, but some things will be actually be translated multiple times. So there'll be an Arabic text with an English translation and a French translation, and perhaps some you know, a Spanish translation. And as you click the button, one of those texts moves to the foreground, and the others kind of move back and get a little grayed out. So you can do a kind of, it's kind of like side by side, but it's actually interlinear. Um, Very cool. And you can watch, you know, have it Arabic to English or English to Arabic or French to Arabic, Arabic to French. And the, and the text that you want to read in your language is dark, but you can always check it against the text that's going on. That's a really interesting project. And I think, you know, we have publishers in town here. A phoneme is a translation press. A name press is working on translation. I think that we're heading towards, and partly because people are feeling exactly what you're well, expressing here. I'm asking as someone who teaches students who speak Spanish in their, class, in their home, right? right. And, and they get taught to write and speak in English in academic context. They're like, how are we all going to cope with that? Um, and, and I don't think there's just one answer, of course. Mm -hmm. It should never be one. Yeah, thank you. Uh, there's another question here? Yeah. A question about this kind of cross medium. So, the number of mediums like public radio or television, it seems like longer form storytelling seems to be of interest to a number of people. Have you noticed in the literary world any change in consumption or interest in longer form storytelling or novels? I think you are right on. I think one big thing about the fiction of my generation and, and younger is This American Life and etc. And it's a way of thinking about voice. Everyone now thinks about the first person differently. Even if they're writing fiction, there's, a, there's an emphasis on... The same way, you read Don DeLillo, and you can tell that the tape recorder is still kind of new for him. If you read Libra, he's having so much fun with... It's like when we were kids and we'd watch 60 Minutes and you'd see the... They'd get the bad guy and you'd see the image of the tape recorder and then it would, you'd see the transcript and you'd think, oh shit, that's how we talk? We talk in that kind of garbled, strange nonsensical in those snippets and Delillo's hearing it. You know, Delillo makes you feel that the recording technology makes you feel that as part of the way we hear each other. And I think it's not a coincidence that the dialogue, the way we have it in the modern novel really comes up with cinema. So, you know, you don't, Dickens of course writes with quotation marks, but he doesn't do that, the, the Elmore Leonard, 
Hemingway to Leonard to George B. Higgins. But actually, we could really name almost any, yes, any 20th century novelist. There's a convention of dialogue that's really actually very new. And exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Should we thank Lauren and drink some more? Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Lutz's Dialogue with Lauren Stein, the editor of the Paris Review. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are... Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 